the blessedness of this occasion is certainly a wonderful thing to behold. The capability on this particular Sunday to gather together as we've been so richly blessed and that in abundance. So many on our sick list and those even in the community who may be members of our family that perhaps attend other places or are in other ways so afflicted with sickness or illness. This is a time of the year when it seems that that can often be rampant. But we have been so blessed this morning to be able to come together and to engage in song, to engage in prayer, to opportunely encourage one another, and also to open the wonderful pages of God's Word and to study a lesson to be found therein. I'd invite your attention, as you may have noted, as Brother Joy read a few moments earlier from the fourth chapter of Joshua, our lesson today will be drawn from that chapter as we look at the interesting case of Israel's stone memorial. Some of the stories that we encounter in the Old Testament, though they themselves occurred now thousands of years ago from our standpoint, nonetheless contained within them are the timeless messages of wonder and quite often the riveting feelings that can aid us even today as we encounter and face the very same issues in a principled way in life as they did. It is to that given text that I would direct our thoughts today as we look at the case of Israel's stone memorial. So we begin the lesson. Some introductory thoughts might be in order. First, as we consider the nature of the strength of a, of a memorial itself, the greatness to be found within it, the character of what is involved. The nature of a memorial itself is something we are rather accustomed to considering. For after all, we may often have stood at the foot of a monument, perhaps a statue, and looked with interest as to what that memorialized the incidents perhaps that took place decades or perhaps centuries earlier. In fact, in that memorial, we often see directly what brings to our mind some of the greatest and most moving and compelling of episodes. Perhaps you're thrilled with antiques and other things that harken your mind back to an earlier day and time. Maybe in your home you have memorabilia that specifically brings to your mind some sentimental matter that occurred perhaps many years earlier any way in which that is looked at. We see that memorial in terms of its word is an easy thing to behold. And aren't there some other words that relate so closely to it, such as remembrance and memory? In regard to that latter, isn't it fair to say that one of the great things that God has blessed the human family with is the capability of a memory? We can recall and so vividly things that happened perhaps in the distant past in our lifetime and yet they are etched indelibly in our mind as a memory. Anytime we perhaps hear that song or see that episode, we can think back to that time and perhaps the very things we were doing then, the situations in our life. May I submit to you that the word memorial occurs in the Bible over 30 times. It seems that God, too, is aware of the impressive power of, of a memorial and that He has embedded that within the character of His holy divine will. As we study about memorials this morning, I would suggest we revisit this Old Testament one and learn again some of the interesting things to be found there and seek to apply them to ourselves. With some of those introductory thoughts made, would you consider the following with me? First, let's define that of which we speak. What do we mean more specifically by the word memorial? Whether it be Old or whether it be New Testament, the ideas underneath that word are exceedingly similar. In fact, the Old Testament Hebrew word that's translated memorial simply means remembrance, reminder, or memorial. 
in much the same way as what one might anticipate. In terms of the New Testament Greek word that's translated memorial, it simply means or has reference to that which keeps a memory alive. All of that sounds much again as what one would expect. Why might memorials be so important? Why might God consider it something of which he would invest some interest and some inspired scriptures to relate to? It would seem that there are two things and they're so easily understandable to all of us. Is it not true that in general, humans have pretty short memories? You and I have often been there ourselves. Something occurred in our life and we think that was so momentous and so memorable, I'll never forget the details of it. Five years later, we can barely remember the vaguest of conditions surrounding it. Ten years later, we might do well to remember it at all. In general, is it not true that quite often what's out of sight is out of mind? You may have heard that statement, even used it yourself. As long as we're directly faced with something, we far more are apt to remember it. But when we're not faced with it, the details can easily become sketchy. Not only that, we as humans also fail in many ways when we appreciate that the best of intentions often are never realized. They never go beyond that of intention. They remain only in the realm of what could have been and never became what ought to have been. In fact, as we study memorial this morning, as God gave direction to Joshua, we'll be reminded of these two matters and God himself will make comment about them. But perhaps without further ado, might we notice that memorials are able to address these two shortcomings? In fact, I've made statements like the following. A memorial is a tangible item, something that's real that, in fact, makes forgetting difficult. We can see it. We can experience it. It is something that directly brings to mind the events and characteristics of a former phenomenon. It makes forgetting difficult. And not only that, it's a testimony to that fact something was accomplished. Memorials are never erected to intentions. They're erected to what has taken place. Someone did something that was worthy of memorializing it. It would be fair to say that as we consider this episode in Joshua chapter 4, there are many examples in our day that seems easily enough to understand. Maybe you visited Washington, D.C., and you've stood before the Vietnam War Memorial and read name after name of the person who gave his life in the characteristics of that armed conflict. Maybe you stood at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and memorialized that president who led us through the Civil War. Maybe you stood beneath the Washington Monument or even rode up within it, and from its atop were able to perch and watch the city of Washington. Any of them are direct memorials to former leaders in our land or those who gave their lives in defense of the mission of which it stands. Worthy of memorial. Worthy of remembering and never forgetting. Might we look in the Bible and ask, what are some things that would be worthy of memorializing it? Would you consider the following notes? In Exodus 28, verse 29, God there made specific note concerning Aaron, that when he appeared before the God of heaven to perform various of his priestly duties, he was to wear a breastplate, and upon it were to be the names of twelve tribes of Israel. And specifically, the reason God gave is for a memorial unto the Lord forevermore. This was so that a memorial would be in existence in regard to the 12 tribes and God could observe that 
not as though God would ever forget, of course, but a constant memorial of the fact this was His people, that these were the very ones through whom the Messiah would one day come. Or what about 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 26, where there the inspired apostle, as he made reference to the Lord's Supper, himself said, quoting the words of Jesus, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In a few moments, by the blessing of the great God of heaven, as we participate in that marvelous memorial, we thus should do so in remembrance of him. In the next verse, in regard to the fruit of the vine, he said, in essence, this do, this take, in remembrance of me. Can we not see that the memorial idea is alive and well in the partaking of the Lord's Supper? We should ever understand what it stands for, that which originated it, and the fact that even to this day it's a constant reminder each and every first day of the week of what took place just outside Jerusalem so many years ago now. These concepts of a memorial race in our mind back to Joshua now, chapter 4. We certainly will not retrace the history and all of its detail, but would you just note some of the highlights with me? The nation of Israel, of course, had a storied history. And as much as God had made promise concerning the nature of that to Abraham, he told him that you will be the father of many nations, and in fact, many peoples numbered as the sand of the sea will come from you. Genesis 13, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And as all of that was made promise to him, Abraham, of course, during his lifetime had but one son of promise, and that was Isaac. In fact, some 500 years later, that very same people would find themselves, if you will, on the verge of entering into another promise that God gave, namely the land of Canaan. God had promised to that people that they would inherit and inhabit a beautiful and powerfully fertile land that would grow beautifully and that, in fact, would meet all of their physical needs. Abraham never lived to fully appreciate that, and neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob, neither did Joseph. In fact, many generations would pass before that promise met its final fulfillment when the children of Israel crossed that Jordan River and entered into Canaan and there occupied that land that God had promised. You might notice as a part of that history, they did find themselves in Egyptian captivity at one point. As they were captives in Egypt, here is where God made direction in intent to bring that people out and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey fulfilling that promise to Abraham so many centuries earlier. In light of all those statements, that brings us, in essence, to the opening chapters of Joshua. That people did come forth from Egypt. That people did wander in a wilderness for virtually 40 years. But when we open the book of Joshua, we find them encamped just east of the Jordan River. Just across that river was the land they'd looked forward to for generations. You can imagine the fathers who would tell their sons, Son, God's leading us to a land and to a wonderful place. I may not live to be there, but you might. And generation by generation, anxiously awaiting the time of that fulfillment. As we come to chapters 2 and 3, the encampment site now prepared fully and across the river, the land inside, they were prepared to cross that river and take the land that they'd been promised that which fulfilled the things God had revealed. That's the very place of this memorial. That's the very occasion of the reading, as we had just seen it earlier. 
if you revisit some of the things found in that region, you'll notice that the following scene of events took place. First, when the priests who carried that Ark of the Covenant had their feet in the shallow waters at the bank of the Jordan, God had promised that I'll cut off the waters of the Jordan, and not only those priests, but the others shall walk across on dry land. The priests, as they proceeded to cross, were to stop in the river, in the Jordan River bed, while the people crossed before them. And all the while that took place, there was one other commandment. You and I may think it extremely odd, perhaps even peculiar. If you begin reading with me in verse number 1 of Joshua 4, this is the verse that's just before those that Joey read earlier. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. God had a plan. In addition to miraculously stopping the waters of the Jordan, and giving the specific directions for the crossing of it, God said, one more thing, Joshua. Out of every tribe, you tell a man to take a stone out of that Jordan River bed, carry it to the other side, and you pitch it this night in the formation of a memorial where you will dwell tonight on the western side of the Jordan River. Notice that Joshua and the people did exactly as God said. They formed that memorial that very night in a place called Gilgal. As we reflect on the meaning of that memorial, I would ask you to notice some of the things that we've just noted and perhaps some meaning that would be found within it. First of all, these observations perhaps directly follow. First, by the very command of God, a memorial was to be formed. And because of that definition and what we studied earlier, we immediately conclude that there are some things Israel was never to forget. There were some things so worthy of her attention and so worthy of her determined consideration that it was not to be forgotten from one generation to the next. To that extent, a memorial was to be founded. Notice some of the things about it. Entering Canaan was, of course, a remarkable accomplishment. Here was a band of slaves living in Egypt, and yet God had brought them forth and gave them victory over what was at that time the most powerful nation on earth. They had wandered through a wilderness for 40 years. All the while, they'd never grown any crops, and yet they were sustained. In fact, their numbers multiplied and grew during the course of the wilderness wandering. Had not they been beautifully blessed and powerfully sold by the God of heaven? Here they were to cross into the land God had promised to their forefather half a millennium earlier. It was so momentous, so important that they were not to Thus, a memorial was to be founded. Are there not things today in our lives that are so significant we ought not forget them? Things so moving and so compelling that we should not be quick to allow time to erase it from our memory and mind? We might appreciate that this Word of God is so pertinent in that regard, isn't it? We certainly ought not from our early days as we grow into adulthood and later allow its precepts and principles to lapse from our mind. I've listed some scriptures for your consideration. In 2 Timothy 2, verse number 8, as the Apostle Paul wrote to that young son of the faith of his, 
his words may seem somewhat unusual. He said, remember that Jesus Christ, that one born of the seed of David, why did Timothy need to remember that? Was he not a faithful preacher and soldier of the cross? Why did Paul need to give him direction to remember Jesus? Could it not be the same reason that would be pertinent for us today? Though we may mentally know that, it's one thing to know it. It's another to live one's life in open recognition of it. Timothy, not only preach that word, but live your life as a powerful example of the fact that there is a Jesus, that he was the sacrifice for sin, and that he lives and is alive and well today in the wonderful climes of heaven. Remember Jesus. In Hebrews 13, 7, remember them that have the rule over you. A reference to the eldership of the congregation. We ought to remember their tireless labors in the cause of Christ. The work that is done, perhaps much that you and I never know about that is intended for the safeguarding of the flock and the pushing of it onward to the beautiful place of its eternal abode. What was it Jude proclaimed in Jude verses 4 and 5? There again, the observation to remember something. This time, it is a warning to each and every one of us. On that occasion, he makes note that we ought to remember that just as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, thousands of them fell in the wilderness due to unbelief. Thus, Again, it's more than just a mental observation. We, too, need to never forget the underlying cause of what it means to be a Christian and what was done for you and for me. I'd submit to you that in, a, in another way, we might think about some of those great events in our life. Do you remember the day you were baptized? Do you remember the month and the day of it? That was your spiritual birthday. Was that day so momentous? Was it so marvelous and wonderful that it's forever etched in detail in the recesses of your mind? Perhaps it should be for all of us. Each year we celebrate our physical birthdays with ice cream and cake or perhaps other wonderful things and events. Is our spiritual birthday that important to us? Is our spiritual birthday so overwhelmingly compelling that we can never forget the events of that day? the things that surrounded it, what took place, and the wonderful feeling we knew once we came forth from that water grave of baptism. We shouldn't forget that. In fact, it ought to purge us onward and upward to greater service of faithfulness. Some things ought not be forgotten. What's more, what about our children? The day that you witnessed your son or your daughter baptized into Christ. Perhaps tears flowed from your eyes, not tears of sadness, of course but tears of overwhelming joy, tears of understanding that this precious one who flowed forth from the physical loins of yourself and wife or husband is such that now that person has chosen to dedicate his or her life to faithful obedience to the cause of Christ. It is an incredible event. Those are just some things that we ought not forget. In God's Word, He intended Israel not to forget. These stones are to be erected in Gilgal. And did you notice one of the statements that God himself made? Again, in verse number 5, as those stones were erected to make that memorial, there was a purpose behind it, and that purpose is point number 2. Memorials are a great teaching tool. Consider the wording again. I'm reading, if you will, from verse 6, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Aren't children wonderfully inquisitive? 
And sometimes even we as adults also exhibit that same characteristic. We want to know why, and we'd like to know how. What's the purpose of this? What's the meaning of it? Don't you know that as often as those 12 stones were erected as a memorial there at Gilgal, quite often a child would ask Dad, Dad, why are these stones there? What is symbolized by them, and what do they mean? Dad was supposed to be ready to give an answer. The reason as to why those stones were erected, the momentous event when they crossed the Jordan and all that that symbolized. A memorial is still that way. When you visit Washington, you probably will be able to see a father and son or perhaps a father and daughter standing in front of that Vietnam War memorial and just staring almost endlessly at the names. You might hear her ask, Dad, who were these people? What did they do that was so important? And then Dad can explain. Or perhaps Mom can explain. You and I are blessed today with a host of memorials. We've already listed some in a spiritual way, such as the Lord's Supper. But notice that these should be teaching tools. When that young child asked, Dad, what's this bread and fruit of the vine that's passed around the building at a certain time each Sunday? Dad, what is it about providing money into that plate that's passed around? I noticed that, Dad, why is it you don't work so much on Sunday like the other days of the week? Mom, why do you take off Wednesday night for Bible study? Those questions deserve an answer, don't they? And shouldn't we be happy and proud to provide those answers and explain to that inquisitive mind a thing that they shall never forget? Memorials. Israel, as those children were to ask, what mean ye by these stones? Could I ask you to look later in the chapter? God addresses this same fact again. That night when they came to Gilgal, would you begin reading with me in verse 19 of Joshua 4? And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. If you and I were to paraphrase, the fathers were to be ready to tell the story. They were to know the meaning of that memorial and happily divulge that information when those children were to ask it. Tell the story. And the same, of course, is true of us. When they wonder about the nature of our worship services, may we be ready to tell the story. Why don't we have a mechanical instrument? Why don't we do various other things? For they will ask. Their friends in other places do these things. Dad, why don't we do that? Mom, could we not try this in our worship? And we should faithfully be ready just as Joshua told Israel. Tell the story. Be ready to share with them why and how and the fact that we desire thus saith the Lord. In fact, some other passages that I brought to your attention. In Psalm 78, verses 5 and following. There, this is, of course, centuries later, and when David penned that book, he said, Tell it to the next generation. Tell it to the next generation. We know that the church of tomorrow is the youth of today. 
We know that we as adults and older ones will soon have to lay the old mantle down. We will not physically be able to carry forth the work and service any longer. And of course the time shall come that we shall pass from this life if it be the blessing of God. If time shall sustain the young ones, they will carry on the work of tomorrow. They shall be the elders and the deacons and the preachers and the wives of all of them. They shall carry on the work as marvelous and workable citizens in the church. May we must tell them. Tell them the story. Embed within their minds the thoughts of what it means to memorialize the truths of the Scriptures so that they too can be the faithful servants and make the church of tomorrow that which it ought to be of course to tell the story. You might be that we could remember some other passages found in the pages of God's Word. How often did God command that the ancient landmarks were not to be moved? That is to say, those memorials that had been erected were not to be dismembered. They were not to be cast aside. In both Proverbs as well as Deuteronomy, that command is given. Remove not the ancient landmarks. As we instill within our children the truth of modern landmarks and spiritually what those mean, we'll be striving for them, of course, not to move them, but in fact to sustain them, to maintain them, to defend them, and to carry them forth themselves. Indeed, as we consider memorials are a great teaching too, perhaps one final observation, one final comment about Israel's stone memorial. Notice in this case that the memorial had a very clear purpose. It wasn't arbitrarily set forth at Gilgal just for a case of common common communication or even conversation. It was meant to teach, and it was meant to show their reliance upon God. It was meant to point their lives to what ultimately the foundation was supposed to be. Many times in the years following this event, Israel would find themselves somewhat less than sturdily faithful. There were times that they, in fact, became wholly idolatrous. They actually forgot God. In Jeremiah 2.32, the haunting question is asked about this people, that they had forgotten me, God said. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride or attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. They were supposed never to forget, yet they did. We see that these memorials, though erected physically, they aren't a guarantee of faithfulness. We must, within ourselves, have the dedication and the determination to ensure our faithfulness within ourselves and our families. That leads me again to this last comment. The goal of these spiritual memorials in every case was to memorialize the reliance upon God. Israel was never to forget who brought her out of Egypt, who led her across the Red Sea, who led her through the wilderness, who led her across the Jordan, and who gave her this land. She was never to forget, and yet she did. The very first of the Ten Commandments, in effect, was along the same line when it said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God was to be the foundation, the basis. Later in 1 Samuel 7 and 8, that forgetfulness was esteemed by Samuel in these words. They've not rejected you, Samuel, God said. They've rejected me. Can we not see that today we must understand the significance of the memorials in our life in a spiritual way, found things as they're supposed to be, and use them to direct our attention and direction toward God? I would ask you to notice again verse 24 of Joshua 4. 
the very last verse of that chapter, it begins with the word that, a, a word expressing purpose. This memorial was that all the people might know the hand of the Lord. Do you and I know the Lord's hand, how mighty it is, how great it is, how marvelously wonderful it is? Israel was supposed to know it. Furthermore, that it is mighty and that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Do you and I fear Him, knowing the greatness and austere character of Him? We know that our life ought to be an open memorial to that fact. Others ought to see that in us. They, through us, should appreciate respect for the Almighty and understand that His Word is unquestionable, that His Word is absolutely true in every respect. These things are what Israel was supposed to know. In fact, a text later to be found in Psalm, verses 40, chapter 44, verses 1 to 3, I'd ask you to listen as I read that. Listen to the statements made on that occasion that remind us of the very scene that we have studied this morning, the first three verses of Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand, and plantest them how thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. In his wisdom, David readily understood and wrote the fact when our fathers occupied Canaan, it wasn't by their personal efforts. It was God that gave them that land. Has not God given you and me a great spiritual land today? Oh, indeed, we're blessed physically far more than most individuals on earth. But yet, what great blessing spiritual. For all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, 3. And contained in Him is salvation, 2 Timothy 1, 9. And the eternal hope of heaven, Colossians 1, verse 6. These matters are worthy of memorials. May our life, in recognition of the more memorials God has set up spiritually, ever allow us to remember, not just once every now and then, but daily, the fact of what God has done. I'm reminded of that text where Jesus uttered in Luke 9, 23, that if we are to be followers of His, we, in fact, must be those who take up the cross daily. He didn't say weekly. He didn't say monthly. He didn't say yearly. He said daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That means it's a constant memorial. What about your life and mine then today? The scenes of these third events tell us that the memorials seen in the New Testament are those which our faithful apostles were quick to remember. May we be as quick as them to recall that Peter even said until the day of his death in 2 Peter 1, 12 to 15, he remembered. And he would urge others to do the same. The concluding thoughts of the lesson then might be these. This stone memorial was to not be forgotten by Israel. They were to remember the lessons taught there. And those lessons perhaps could be these three. First, some things ought not be forgotten. Secondly, as we appreciate too, some things ought not be forgotten. It's a great teaching tool. And finally, that these great spiritual memorials are reminders about God. My life and yours is compared to a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away, James 4.13. May we, in terms of memorial, have a legacy such that those who follow us, be it our children or others, will remember that for which we stood 
and appreciate that we told our children and that we invested within them the character of the fact that we told it to the next generation. We told the story. Have you made yourself a member of that story today? You need to be a Christian. You need to have allowed Christ's blood to wash you from sin. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be immersed, baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in doing that today, how wonderful it'd be. This would be your spiritual birthday. This day, the 10th of February, 2008, a day that you'll never forget. If you have become a member of his body, but you have not lived up to the calling of it, you've allowed the memorials to become meaningless. You haven't implanted the thoughts of them in your life and used them to prod you onward to greater faithfulness and service. Come back to your first love today. There's a host of individuals who would be more than excited to pray on your behalf. If we could aid you in your rededication or in your initial obedience to the gospel, would you not let that be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?